I want to talk about finding your destiny in the desert. And you probably wonder what that means. I actually want to start with a quote. And the quote is, is by Nadine Gordimer, which I have no idea who that person is. But I found this quote online and I thought it was very fitting as a way to segue into what I want to talk about. And the quote is this, a desert is a place without expectation. And I want you to hold on to that quote because I think that all of life is shaped by expectations. And if you look back at your history personally, you'll find that the course that you took, a lot of the decisions you made along that course had to do with the expectations that either people had placed upon your life or the expectations that you had placed upon someone else's life. We either react to people or we try to project our own ideas and future into other people. And that can be a good thing, a really good thing, a powerful thing, or it can be a bad thing. And so we're looking at the life of Paul because that's what pastor's been preaching on. And there's these two expectations that I want to cover right off the bat. And I want you to think about these. So expectations projected upon us by other people and expectations inside of us for other people. And why do I highlight these? Because when our minds are filled with the expectations that other people have been speaking into our world, or the expectations that we can even feel that they're thinking about us, a lot of times we don't follow the will of God. I'm not talking about the expectations or the thoughts or the ideas or the vision or the advice that the pastor has for your life or, or that some of the assistant pastors may have for your life or your, your family members that really love you, the people that are really godly. I'm talking about the people that are well-intentioned, but they really are not driving you toward Christ. Do you have any of those people in your life? Because we live in this Christian culture, so, so to speak, it's kind of a joke to call it a Christian culture, but we live in this Christian culture where people that say they're Christians are a lot of times promoting things that are really not Christian ideals. They're not Christian ideas. They don't have a Christian vision for your life. The things they speak are not things Christ would ever tell you to do. And so you get so far off course, you don't know which way you're going. And a lot of times what comes out of that is frustration and anger. And so we join Paul, you know, on the road to Damascus, which pastors already covered that, but he gets, he sees this blinding light and a vision of Christ. And immediately he recognizes this is Lord. Like Jesus really is who he said he was. He actually says, who is that Lord? He addresses him as Lord. You know, Saul or Paul, whatever, whatever you want to call him, grew up knowing everything about the Bible and the Old Testament, and he was, he was well-versed in who God was, and so he immediately identified, this is God stopping me. We talked, you know, Pastor talked last week about how God called or spoke to Ananias and said, now I want you to go to a man named Saul of Tarsus, and I want you to go and talk to him about what his ministry is going to be all about, and I want you to lay hands on him and, and, and give him back his sight. And I was listening to a message this week that I thought was pretty funny. It was by T.D. Jakes, and he said, um, don't tell God what you've heard. 
And I thought, that's really interesting because immediately God says to Ananias, now go and lay hands on Saul. Go and tell Saul. Go and, and give him back his sight. I'm going to use you as the vessel to give him back his sight. And T.D. Jakes was saying, don't tell God what you've heard because God's got it all figured out. We act like God's not omniscient. We act like he's some stupid fairy up in the sky flying around. I'm not trying to be blasphemous, but that's how we treat him. He's just distant. And when we really need him, then we're going to ask for his help. But in a lot of cases, we question him and say, well, God, you know, I heard that Saul of Tarsus is a Christian killer. I couldn't possibly go lay hands on him. And God said emphatically, this is the man I'm going to use as a vessel to reach the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus. You don't know who the next Saul is. Do you understand that? You know, I was... I've been looking a lot at um, how Muslims are being treated, and I'm not just a big Muslim sympathizer. If people are going to come blow us up, then we should have a border, and we shouldn't let them in, and we should fight terrorism. Exactly. That's what we should do. But one of the things I think we can do as conservatives or as right-wingers or as fundamentalists is we can really just say, kill them all. And I'm thinking, well, if there are any that are open to Jesus, we should be shining the light of Jesus in their world. Because how are they any different than Saul, really? He was killing people. They didn't end up killing Saul, even though they want, they did in the end. But th even though they wanted to, they didn't kill him right away. So we're going to look at Acts 9, at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. This is where I get to the crux of my message. Everything that I want to say hinges around what happens next. And most people, they don't identify what actually happened in the life of Paul. You just read letters of what he has to say to the churches, and so you don't know much about him. Paul has a history just like you do. Building relationships and knowing what a person's passion and ministry is has to do with just actually saying, who are you? Where did you come from? What was your childhood like? Who were your parents? And what were they like? What are your siblings like? What struggles have you gone through? So if we don't dig into Paul's life, we're not going to have a clue what his true deep down, what his passion is. And Saul at this moment, you know, we can go on to verse 20, actually verse Verses 19 and 20 says that then Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. Boom, like Shazam. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. So this is how we picture it. Paul's just, Saul's just rolling along. Bam, loses sight. Ananias comes, comes by, gives him his sight back. Or God gives him his sight back. And now he goes, he, hey, disciples, what's up? And he starts preaching. But that's really not how it worked. There's a, there's a key thing that we miss, and this is a thing that we not only miss when we read Scripture, we miss it when we try to live a godly life. Saul didn't just run off to the disciples. Historians say, bam. We look at Galatians 1, 10 through 17. I'm going to get to what I'm trying to make here. Saul had a little, a little um, interruption in the ministry. Because you can't just run out when you're confused and you're not totally sure what you believe. We're not going to send a bunch of confused people that just got saved to go lead thousands of people to Christ or preach the gospel because they don't understand it. And this is Saul. He knows he's got years and years of downloaded information of what he believes. And now he's thinking, well, this contradicts a lot of what I believed. And so 
Galatians 1, 10 through 17, if you'll follow with me. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother, set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, not just to me, in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Now, okay, hold on. See, he gets, bam, conversion, gets saved. He gets his sight back, and he runs into the desert. We have this image that he just, I don't get it. He just gets converted, and he's just got it all figured out, and he starts preaching for the rest of his life. Is that how it works? No. You know, I, Brian, you're in here, the drummer, and I don't, I don't want to call you out. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but this morning you were talking about how I don't know if I can fill the gap that you need on the drums. I feel, I feel like this, this anxiety inside of me or whatever it may be, fear, because you feel like you're going to disappoint us or offend us or do something wrong. And the reality is, you know, we might say, well, slow it down or speed it up, but you're not offending us. You're blessing us by being with us. But the reality, Paul, Paul, you think, well, Paul had it all figured out. He lived his whole life believing one way, and bam, he was converted and realized that everything he believed was wrong. I think he needs a break. They say he took three years in the desert of Arabia. He went to the regions of Arabia slash Syria in that area, and they don't know specifically where he stayed, but it's amazing how we think that God produces shotgun destinies. It's just like locked and loaded. I got saved and now I can lead people to Christ and I can preach and I can do this and that and the other thing. If you look at the world around us, you'll see that a lot of the most influential pastors that, that come to an end, it's because they started so young and they'll even admit it. You know, Mark Driscoll, I don't think they handled things correctly with him, but he actually said, I was 25 years old and I, couldn't, I didn't know how to handle thousands of people coming to my church after a year or two. I started in my home and I had thousands of people and I was just so young and I didn't have any mentors or guidance. And all the people that were supposed to be mentoring them along the way just showed up 14 or 18 years later and said, oh, you made a mistake back there. We're going to crucify you. Come on. We as Christians should be able to say, we're going to help restore you. We want to lift you up. And Saul, there's, there's, Saul gets it. You, you think... This is what he's thinking. Well, if my people have all heard about it, the devout Jews and the people in the Sanhedrin, they want me dead. So let's cross them off. And then he goes, well, all the Christians only know me as a man that wants to kill them. So they won't talk to me. They're going to either run for me or they're going to try to chase me out of town so they don't like me either. 
okay, hold on a minute. So now where we all would be like, you know, let's say I screwed up bad and I could just run back into the world with a bunch of reprobates and smoke some weed and get drunk. The Gentiles hate him too. Because he's this devout guy who's been a snob his whole life with his nose high in the air and he looks down on people and he doesn't even go into Samaria. He hates the Samaritans so bad. This guy has literally burned every bridge and he thinks the only place I could go would be the desert. Do you ever feel like the only place you can go is the desert? And sometimes that's what God desires. God desires that. He, he knows that you're not going to get the right direction and the right information and the right mandate for the rest of your life unless he puts you in the desert. And that's where God wants you. So for every person, let's make a little application that is in the desert, that is in a struggle. You have a wayward child. Your marriage is rocky. You have health issues. You've lost a loved one. And you think that God's not there for you because it feels dry and dusty and barren and you're longing and thirsting for something. And God is just saying, I still love you. I'm shaping you. I'm rewiring you. I'm transforming you. I'm enlightening you. I'm illuminating what I'm trying to give you from my word. I'm trying to help you to understand who this Jesus is. And so that's Saul. He's thinking, I know all of the Old Testament, and now I need to come to grips with who Jesus is. Saul, as we have commonly thought is that his name was just like, it was like Abram to Abraham. In reality, he's had the name. It was a cognomen name. It was a Roman cognomen name, Paul. It was a name that came from the Latin Paulus, meaning the little. And the crazy thing is that he was still Saul after he got converted. And you look all the way into like Acts chapter 12 and 13, he's still going by Saul and it transfers somewhere in there to where he starts going by Paul because many believe that when he came back, he immediately went to the synagogues and he was preaching to Jews and he was talking to people he knew. And so his name, Saul was his Hebrew name, but Paul was his Roman slash Gentile name. And so if you remember Paul writing in the New Testament that by all means, I want to become all things that I might possibly reach some, he became weak. He became strong if he had to. He became like a Gentile if he had to, not, not participating in their practices. But, and so what he did is said, I'm going to go by Paul because they're going to receive my message much better if I don't have this crazy Hebrew name. So that's why he's got Paul. And so the little, some, some scholars actually think he embraced, part of why he embraced the name Paul is because he actually considered himself to be weaker than some of the other apostles in the fact that he actually murdered and went against the very people that he became a part of. And so the shame and regret, even in Paul, even in a man who knew the grace of God, that might have even been a part of that thorn in the flesh to him, thinking, I actually killed the very people that I now call brothers and sisters. There was a sense of shame. And you think that you have shame. You think that your drug addiction is going to kill you in this place. People are going to look down upon you. This is a place of love and mercy. God is a God of love and mercy. And so... He had this shame that he was living with, and maybe you do too. Saul is a name that means asked for or prayed for, um, which I don't know if there's great significance in that. Um, many people probably prayed that he would come to their town and, and give them the good news. 
You know, there's people around the world praying that a person like a Pastor Gary would start coming and doing mission work like in Vietnam 19, 20 years ago. They are begging for God to do something. Just like Pastor Gary begged that, God, please come into our home. My dad is abusive and mean and we're so, we're off focus and all he wants to do is work and God came and saved him. You see, just like I sat in that jail cell and I said, God, if you're real, I need to know because if you're not, I want to die. But if you're real, I will live for you. And he showed himself. Amen. Because that was my desert. What's your desert? The desert, you know, we look back at my starting quote. The desert is a place without expectation. When I went to jail, I sat there for 13 days before anyone in my family visited me. And I started to think, do they hate me? And the answer is no. Because I was this person that would say, I'm not going to do that anymore, mom and dad. And then the next night I'd be drinking and I'm sorry I really let you down I'm sorry and then I would do it again and I would prove that I wasn't sorry and so when I went to jail they let me sit there for 13 days so that I'd get a reality check that I'm a grown man I'm 19 years old mommy's not gonna come and save me she's not gonna bring me a warm bottle of milk in jail I mean I have to actually sit here in front of all these other cellmates in the big commons area on the phone mom has been in here for 17 days I'm literally crying Mom, looking at me like all the hardened criminals in there like, for the first 10 days, we thought he was pretty tough. <laughs> she said, Mom, I just, I just hate this. I just want to come home. She's like, it'll be okay. You'll be good out soon. I'm glad I had a mom to call. But the, the reality was I needed 13 days of total separation. Do you know that sometimes you just need total separation from the influences in your life? Sometimes, you know, Saul just thought, I cannot debate this with the people that I used to be with because they're going to try to convince me. And if they don't convince me, they're going to kill me. So they didn't have an option. It's like the option we had. If you don't come to this meeting, then you're done. I guess I'm done then. Because <laughs> I don't want to be with people that put ultimatums on me. You either talk it out and you show me some grace and you try to help me and you try to help our pastor, or guess what? We'll just move on. And that's what Saul thought. And my illustration is my desert is in jail. Your desert could be anywhere. It's, it's in the desert. It is specifically in the desert that God designs and redefines your destiny. He gives you a new purpose. He gives you a new future. He speaks to you in amazingly powerful ways. I challenge you. Every single person, don't get lost right now. Don't get bored because God's speaking. Listen up, okay? Slap the person sleeping next to you. Yeah, I stole that one from Pastor. So, so here's the deal. Saul goes into the desert. He, no one's accepting him. And these are some, some scholars have written about what happened there. And the first one is John R.W. Stott says, he went into Arabia for quiet and solitude. Oh, man. Oh, buddy. You ever need that? He seems to have stayed there for three years. In this period of withdrawal, as he meditated on the Old Testament scriptures, on the facts of the life and the death of Jesus that he already knew and on his experience of conversion, the gospel of the grace of God was revealed to him in its fullness. Now he had Jesus to himself. Oh, man. As it were, for three years of solitude in the wilderness. Now, 
I honestly could say that if any of you would really commit to going away to be alone with Jesus for three years, I bet you would come back a new person. You would be transformed. You wouldn't be giving people the bird on the road. You'd be saying, bless you. We would bless the people who curse us. But inside, we're like, screw off. No, no, hold on a minute. We're not, we don't take on the character of Christ, really, in most cases. Saul had to go and rethink his life. Another, another scholar said, month after month, he wandered to and fro, sharing the rough fare of some Essene community or the lot of a family of Bedouins, now slept, swept upward in heavenly fellowship and again plunged into profound meditation. Deeper than all was God's work in his soul. Grain by grain, his profound self-reliance and impetuosity were worn away. No longer confident in himself, he was henceforth no longer confident in himself. That's I want to. That needs to stand out. He was henceforth more than content. Oh, buddy, more than content to be a slave of Jesus Christ. We all need to go to Arabia to learn lessons like these. I'd say so. I'd say so. You know. Scripture is replete with um, instances where people go into the desert and they don't, they're not just alone the entire time. And I don't know for sure, this is partially speculation, but I think that maybe Saul went into the desert and ran into some other outcasts because that's where they lived. The Essenes, there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Pharisees were the utmost, the best, the nose high in the air. We'll kill you if you do anything wrong, blah, blah, blah. They formed the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of, of, of the Jews. And then you have the Sadducees who were religious and they believed um, in God to a certain extent, but they did not believe in the resurrection, which is the main thing that set them apart from the Pharisees. And then you have the Essenes who they didn't hang out in Jerusalem. Because they didn't fit. They weren't cool enough or good enough to be a Pharisee. They weren't good enough to be a, a Sadducee. But they had some idea of who this God was or who God was. And they wanted to get away into a desert to form their own community. And sometimes I feel like that's us. <laughs> All right, we'll just, um, Zach, call the, th Zach's like, maybe I should call the theater. That was years ago. <laughs> we'll just meet in a theater, right? We get a call. You're out of your office. Oh, buddy. We're on the phone calling people. What are we going to do? You know, it's so powerful to have to depend on God. It is so powerful to have to rely on God. Have you had to rely on Jesus any time recently? Oh, man, because if you haven't, you're probably not walking with him. Do you get that? Dependence on Jesus is crucial for being in his will. It's called submission. It's called surrender. And so he's here, and he's with this Essene community, these people that the Essenes actually practice things such as asceticism, which I'll explain that in a second. Maybe you know what that is. Voluntary poverty, piety, and celibacy. Well, that sounds fun. No birthday cake, no sex, no what else? When you sin and your conscience tells you you've sinned, you physically beat yourself. You know, can you imagine if we implemented any of these practices today? Asceticism, that'd be great. So I'm up here and, or let's just say you're in a public place and you're walking through the mall, okay? And we'll take somebody that might not get offended and leave the church. Jed Hall, is he here today? Yeah, so Jed Hall's walking through the mall and he's got this rod, you know, like a police rod almost, like a stick or a cane. He's cruising along. This is a modern day asceticism. Cruising along and just for a moment, he turns to the right and looks at Victoria's Secret and he's like, 
oh no, and he just starts hitting himself. Stop it, stop it. Could you imagine how crazy? And then he'd be like, I don't know, I go to the rock church. <laughs> Do not try this at home, folks. That's, and that's not good promotion for our church, but asceticism is actually where you, you actually punish yourself for sin. And most of us, we hardly think about our sin. You know, that's one extreme, but our extreme is like, oh, whatever, I lusted four times a day anyways, so I guess it's all a wash. God forgives it. It's just all a wash. It's just a big basket of lusts. You know, add them all up, you get quadruple lust. It's, not, it's all the same. Sin is sin. No, no, God wants us to live a holy life. So I think that Paul, I think that what developed, because if you read his, his writings, if you actually read and look at what he's written, I, it, it literally, it is saturated with empathy. It is, it is just filled with mercy. It is, it is not, some people say, I've, I've heard online and I've read and I've, people say, well, Paul was not an apostle. He saw some crazy vision, blah, blah, They try to discredit his ministry. He went to the desert and came up with some, no, he thought of himself as the worst of sinners. He was so humble. Some of the things I want to highlight that I, I didn't really know is, and I haven't thought about. So he is this guy who, who at like the age of five had to start reciting things. He, the, the life he lived is so opposite of what we live. And, and most of what he learned actually applied to his ministry because he knew the Old Testament in and out. When he was about 13 or 14, he had what was called bar mitzvah. Have you ever heard that, right? Bar mitzvah, where he was con considered to graduate into adulthood. And from there on, he would have to have phylacter phylacteries on his forehead, you know? You look at the scripture and it says, have them on your wrist and on your head. Have the word of God so that it can be in you or you can learn from it. He had to wear this prayer shawl from that point on and pray daily, you know, with the blue tassels. He had to actually wear a prayer shawl. He had to go to the synagogue. The interesting thing I found is the synagogue was not just a physical place. The synagogue was sim simply, actually, it was kind of almost like a, a good example for the church to follow. Not in not believing in Jesus, but a synagogue, what constituted a synagogue was 10 adults. That was a synagogue. So synagogues, sometimes people just met in a certain place or in a house. There were physical synagogues also. But he was a part of at least 10 adults when he became 15, and he finally had to take responsibility. He actually says in Scripture, Paul does, that when the commandment came down on me, and a lot of people believe this is what actually happened, when, when I was given the commandment or the law, I, sin was revived, and I died. Do you understand that what he's saying is that my upbringing, it taught me a lot about scripture, but all the legalism and the rules and the garbage that they tried to cram down my throat killed me. He was ripe for the picking. God said, I know that you don't totally, totally, totally want to follow all these rules of so many steps on Sunday. You know, we live in a culture like that. We judge people for stupidity. Well, she had a short skirt on, so she's going to hell. Well... You know, she's just a darn harlot. She put a big, a big letter, a red letter on her chest. And, you know, she just, she's the, come on. I saw him drinking a beer. I saw you smoking that cigarette behind that rock. Right? 
I saw you, Peter. Peter, it's okay if you use my name, just not after you stub my toe. Stub your toe, sorry. It's okay if you use my name, just not after you stub your toe. No laughing in church unless you're making fun of the devil. Right? We have this idea of Jesus like he's just... I tell you what, sonny boy, if you wouldn't have lusted on the way in, you would have been doing well with me. <laughs> That's not how Jesus is. And so Saul goes, and his, his ministry is developed by these people. I, I, I wrote this. When you hang out with those types of people, the outcasts, the misfits, the depressed people, the, the people, the lepers in the desert that no one would love, when you hang out with these people and you realize how broken they are, and you realize how stuck up and worthless you have been to help them all of your life. God can, can only work on, he can mold you and make you into someone that actually empathizes with the down and out. You know, you can actually go after the person that has the speech impediment or the cleft palate or, the, or who is handicapped or the person that's overweight and, and nerdy or the person that, I mean, you just go right on down the list. All the people that didn't feel that they fit in. And that's who Paul wanted to reach. He said, I won't say that. He said, forget you, all you stuck-up Pharisees. Forget you. Charles Swindoll put it this way, and this was, oh, just, just listen. This really struck me when I was studying. The first time, you ever read something once, and then you, you read it again, and then you read it like the third time, and you're like, man, that's powerful the third time. So once Saul left Damascus and slipped into Arabia, he began taking inventory. There was no to-do-before-sundown lists. Let this sink in, okay? Because this is just, I was like sitting at the counter convicted and borderline crying and like, okay. No six fast steps to success or other self-help scrolls clumped under his arms. He was alone. He walked slower. He watched sand swirl over the stones. He thought deeply about his past. He relived what he had done. He returned to what he had experienced on the road to Damascus. He considered each new dawn a gift from the Lord, the perfect opportunity to rework his priorities and rethink his motives. It takes time, of course, lots of time. But time spent in solitude prepares us for inevitable challenges that come at us from the splintered age in which we live. We live in such a broken age. We live in such a broken world. We don't understand that the world wouldn't be so broken if we weren't so broken. You know, I've shared many times that Ambrose Bierce was a philosopher and a writer, and back in the day in England, there was a competition for people to write and, and give a thesis about a response to what's wrong with the world today. And he wrote, I am. Well, that's what Paul thought. What's been wrong with this picture all my life? Me. I've had it wrong. I've been doing the wrong things. I'm, I'm, I'm the wrong type of person. You know, a lot of times we need to look at the deeper things of what a person went through in order to, to be able to do the type of ministry that they did. You need to know the background. So Paul's background, just a brief background before I close this out. He actually went through five whippings, five. And these, let me explain this, five whippings in front of a, some sort of Jewish leadership. These are people he knew. Almost assuredly, every time he was whipped, he was being whipped 
by his friends or the people he grew up or the people he actually studied with or the people that were in leadership as he was growing up. Now, Gamaliel was not the person whipping him, so I don't want to confuse you there because that was his rabbi, but he's actually getting whipped by the people that he once hung out with. Can you imagine that? These are his childhood friends. It's like me down getting whipped and like looking at Aaron like, what the, what the world? You know, that wouldn't happen, but this actually happens in life because when I stopped drinking and partying, all of my friends started spreading horrible rumors about me and they wouldn't talk to me. They said things like I got pulled over and I was high on cocaine and I was, you were at the party with me. We were drinking. We weren't snorting cocaine. They said I tried to pull the tie off the cop and tried to fight him, which I mean, that would have been fun in the moment, but I didn't do that. You know, there were five cop cars behind me that would have been a little outnumbered. I might have been able to outrun them if I was sober because a lot of, I won't go there, but I've said before, and I don't want to offend any police officers, but there are a lot of cops that I see that I'm like, how are you supposed to catch somebody on foot? And I actually say, like, we'll be with a college group, and this is probably not a good influence on college kids, but I'm cruising along, and I'm like, I've always thought, it's, it's like this creeping little, you have that little sin that you like, oh, it just feels so good just to do this. And you're thinking, like, in the moment, you would just, I'd just love to go up and, like, smack them or, like, pull on his tie or just, just whatever, not hurt him, but just do something really funny and then run because there's no way he's going to catch me. But he'd probably shoot me and I'd die, so that probably wouldn't be worth it. <laughs> so back on point because I'm good at telling rabbit trail stories. So we're getting back on point 40 minus 1 were the amount of lashes he would get in the presence of his friends. And the chief priest usually was the one to administer some things I found is interesting is every, five times he received 39 lashes with a leather type whip, bam. And they would do 10 on the front side in most cases and the rest on the shoulder. They'd pick a shoulder and they just bam. Or on the back and the shoulder, it would hit obviously the back too. And the, the crazy thing is that a lot of scholars believed he could have said, I'm not a part of your belief system. I'm not. He could have forsaken his Jewishness and gotten out of it because that was something that was administered to people that claimed to be devout Jews. And Paul never gave that up. He was a devout Jew. He just didn't follow Judaism anymore. He was a devout Jew that was a Christian. He was a Messianic Jew. So he actually, what he was doing is trying to share the gospel without even talking in their presence by getting whipped for the sake of Christ. Because what it did is, and this is what you can learn a lesson in life. Sometimes you have to take the brunt of it to prove that you really believe in Jesus. He had to sit there and take 39 lashes and bleed and be in pain and groan and yell and almost die on some occasions so that the people that did not believe in Jesus would sit there and think, if he'll endure that much for the one he says he believes in, I wonder if he's real. Because don't kid yourself, there were other Pharisees that came to believe. We look at scripture and we find people that, like Nicodemus, came to believe in Jesus. There was the only way that you could get out of this kind of whipping was if you excreted some sort of excrement in the process or you urinated. I'm not trying to be gross, but I just thought, well, I would just go to Taco Bell beforehand. No, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but if you were in such excruciating, it was like a sign that you could possibly be so injured that you might be dying because that's, a, that's something that's connected to dying is your bowels lose the power to hold it in. And so that was the only way to get out of it. 
He could have forsaken his Jewishness. The second thing I was thinking is he could have easily, in all of the pain and struggle he went through after he left the desert, he got his destiny in the desert and he had to prepare himself to think, don't kid yourself, he knew the law so well. He knew when I go and preach here, they're gonna whip me. When I go and preach here, they're gonna try to throw me in prison. He knew that. Don't you think it'd take you at least three years to get up the courage to go back and endure all that? He needed it. So we sit and we look at him, and I'm closing this out here, but he could have pulled his Roman citizenship card like that in many cases, and he only did it twice as recorded in Scripture. He only said, I'm a Roman citizen twice. There were times when he could have said, I'm a Roman citizen, and they wouldn't have been able to legally do what they did to him. They wouldn't have been able to put him in prison or do this or that. And I don't know all the rules of it, but you couldn't crucify a Roman citizen. Romans crucify people all the time, but they could not crucify their own Roman citizens. There were other rules that they had to follow if you were a Roman citizen. And the backstory to the whole thing is that I believe that it was very political like our day. I think that they say that there's like four to five different things that would actually, if you were a Jew, that would make you a Roman citizen. Because Paul says he was born a Roman citizen. How was he born a Roman citizen? It meant either his father or his grandfather or his great-grandfather somehow had to become a Roman citizen. And they say that it is it's either by way of serving and completing in the military for Rome or it's by a special reward for doing something for the government. It's like an Obama phone. Or it's like, it's like you actually get, there was a thing, there was a grant called M-Block Grant. It was a grant. It was granted to you that you get to be a Roman. And so what we find is that most scholars, they don't know the names and the details of, of his parents, but they believe that his dad was most likely a Pharisee as well in the Sanhedrin or some type of leader in that status, and that his mom was a devout Jew, and they actually got in good with the government. And do you see how it was so easy for the Jews to convince Pontius Pilate and the Romans to let them crucify Jesus? Because they were in bed with the Romans. They were so holy, but they were in bed with the Romans. Most of the big officials would find a way to get rewarded Roman citizenship because it got them a lot of perks, and they had sway in the Roman government. So, closing this out, we look at how does this apply to you? How does this apply to you? You know, people like David and John the Baptist and Moses and a multitude of others have gone to the desert, the physical desert. But I'm talking about a place being alone with God for a duration of time. And it could be five hours this afternoon, not sleeping, okay? Because I'm going to take a nap, but that doesn't count. The desert is a place of being alone. We underestimate the power of aloneness with God. We underestimate the power of simply sitting and talking to Jesus. Not you and your wife, not you and your kids, not with the TV on, in the corner of a room with the door closed, with the lights off, whatever you need, get alone with Jesus and he'll give you what your destiny is meant to be. The reason why some of us are so messed up and we've so far missed our destinies is because we're never alone with God and we never listen to him. You say you're a Christian, but you haven't talked to him all week. You haven't been alone with him for more than five minutes. God always makes you lose before you know what is right to choose. Hmm? He always makes you lose something and have to spend time alone with him and ask him why did this happen before he can give you the right direction. 
we look at three things that I believe are crucial. First, instead of speeding up, slow down and rethink. We live in a rat race. Slow down and rethink. Second, instead of talking more, be quiet and reflect. Third, instead of seeking a place of power, be still and release. Because pastor said it a million times, the way up is down. The way up is to wash feet. The way up is to carry stages. The way up is to paint the walls. The way up is to do the landscaping. The way up is to come and clean the toilets with your tongue. No, just kidding. But the way up, the way up is down. Humility leads to what success is in God's eyes. And pride leads to destruction. You find your desert and you find your destiny. So you today, think about, have I even spent time alone with God? What things do I need to give up today? Because I need to be stripped of things. I need to go to the desert and be with God. Let's pray. God, is, as we sit here, you literally have a plan for each person. That's incredible. And you not only wanted to minister through Saul, through Paul, the, the same guy, you, you not only wanted to minister through him to specifically the Gentiles, but you knew that in the distant future, because most of us are not Jewish, some may be, but you wanted to reach all of us. You know, if, if God hadn't worked specifically through Paul, would we even be saved? Would we even have the opportunity? God, in his amazing mercy, has opened the door for you, and you can believe. And many of you do believe. Take that to the next level. Take it to the next level. God, please pour out your blessing on us. Help us to, to sit alone with you and to realize that there's nothing that compares to you. Is there anybody in here you just say briefly, because we gotta, we got to go, but you say, i got to get rid of something right now. I need to take a step back. I need to sit in the desert for a while. There's some things i got to give up. I'm giving them to God right now. Raise your hand. You're giving them to God. You are giving them to God. God, take these things away, these strongholds, these, these whatever they are. Free the people that are in bondage. They're in the rat race. They're lost in the city and they need, to, they need to flee to the desert to meet you, God. Now, we just praise you, God. I don't, I, I don't want to miss this opportunity. Is there anybody in here that says, I don't even think I know Jesus. I don't know that I'm going to heaven. I have been in the desert and I want to leave the desert. I need I need Jesus. It's very dark in here, so raise your hand high if that's you. If there's anybody that says, I need to know, I don't know that I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus when I die. All right, if you want to talk to somebody and that's you, you can talk to Pastor Gary or myself or one of the other pastors. If you're a woman, you can talk to Becky because that's crucial. God, we praise you today. Do we praise him? Thank you for the gift of salvation and for working in our lives and for loving us and for changing us. Please help us to be a light into this world and to this generation to, to, to carry the same torch that Paul carried, to die to ourselves and to love you, God. Amen.